Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mona Chetri, where I ask her, what's life like in the Eastern Himalaya? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I am so excited for today's episode. And also, by the way, I've interviewed people in Australia when I was in Australia, but I don't know that I've ever interviewed someone for Getting Curious while I was in the States and they were in Australia. So without any further ado, welcome Dr. Mona Chetri, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Western Australia. She researches the intersections of development, gender, politics, and environmental transformation in the Eastern Himalayan borderlands of India and Nepal. Okay, Dr. Chetri, do you want me to call you Dr. Chetri, Mona? How do you want me to call you for the rest of our gorgeous time together? Mona is fine. Even Mo is fine. My friends call me Mo. Oh my gosh. One of my closest <laughs> friends' name is Monique, and, and we call her Mo. Um, so I okay. love that story. Um, I also call her Mookers, but I'm going to call you Mona. I'll keep it professional. My friends call me Momo. Momo is also good. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and you're coming to us live from Perth, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And before we started recording, you said that it was very hot over there right now. Yep. Yep. It's been a crazy summer of intense uh, heat. While it's been floods on the East Coast, on the West Coast, it's been just really hot, hot, hot summer. But tomorrow it's going to be cooler, apparently. Can't wait for it to be tomorrow already. So you'll go to that turquoise beach that I went to, Cots something? Cottesloe. That beach was next level. So pretty. It is. And the sunsets are amazing to die for in Western Australia. That's the, one of the most beautiful things ever. It is. It is gorgeous. And like that turquoise water. I'm like obsessed with turquoise water. And it was really like a cool shade of water. Okay, but we're this is not what we're talking <laughs> about today. We're talking about something that is so interesting. I talk about this a lot. I'm getting curious. I come from like a cornfield, like a small town of like 30,000, 40,000 people. The Himalaya mountains felt like... 15 worlds away and like something that I only read about in the news, but I didn't really ever understand. And I'm so curious about the history and contemporarily, like what's going on, which could you be any more qualified to talk to us about this? My word. So can we start off with uh, just letting us know where are the Eastern Himalayan borderlands in the first place? I'll try my best to answer your questions because uh, it's quite an expansive sort of a space in terms of geography and in terms of history. And of course, in terms of contemporary politics and what's going on and development, etc. But I'll try my best. And Mona, just to take the pressure off you, Queen, this is very like, you know, you're like a literal expert, like a literal doctor in this. We're, we're talking like junior <laughs> high level. We're talking like an, right. an, an eight, like a year eight entry level. Like you don't have to like, we're, we're brand new over here. I'm getting curious. So just to start, where are the Eastern Himalayan borderlands? This is really great that, you know, that you're curious about it because I was curious about why are you curious? Because no one seems to be curious about where we are. You know, a lot of the times it's mostly just Nepal that people are interested in. Nepal, where we come from, where I come from, um, it's the Eastern Himalayas, which stretches from uh, Eastern Nepal, then to parts of India, then parts of Bhutan, and then to uh, like an extended part of Northeast India, the state of Arunachal Pradesh. Of course, in academia, you know, there's never a sort of a consensus on where one begins and one ends. Um, so for a lot of people also consider like, you know, that the Eastern Himalayas extends all the way 
to uh, other parts of northeastern India and then towards Myanmar. But the area that I study is eastern Nepal, Sikkim, um, Darjeeling. Have you heard of Darjeeling? Darjeeling yes. tea? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then Bhutan. The countries that encapsulate like the eastern Himalayan borderlands could like are mm-hmm. parts of India, Bhutan, Nepal. And also China, you know, like or oh. what, you know, or the Tibetan Autonomous Region, the TAR, parts of it can also be considered uh, eastern Himalayas. These are all political borders, but if you think of it in terms of geography, it's the same mountain uh, region. The mountain is stretched. And it's not just the mountains, it's the valleys and the plains also that make up the Eastern Himalayas. The idea of borders in that region comes with the British because the British cannot handle that there is no uh, hardcore border, right? Like, you know, the village one day is like saying, oh, this is a part of Bhutan. The next day they'll be like, oh, no, we're a part of Sikkim, right? So these are very liminal spaces. And it's like, it's just like, you know, the British are like, oh, my God, what is going on here? So we need to make sure that we have borders, like hardcore borders. Um, and so that's when it starts to come into uh, the region. That's when borders come. And so this is like in starting in the late 18th and early 19th century. And then towards the early 20th century, we see solidification of uh, the British being there in the region permanently. We also got to do this fierce episode of Getting Curious um, about like, not ancient Chinese history, but like early Chinese history. One thing we learned yeah. there that it was like much smaller than like what is like contemporary like mainland China. So prior to the British, what was happening yeah. like in Eastern Himalayas, like before they came? The thing is, uh, we like to think in terms of history, in terms of dates and things like that, right? Specific dates. But what we've also got to understand is that a lot of the times no one was actually writing these things down, mm. right? So a lot of it, our, our history is actually oral history, right? Um, so that's just the thing to keep in mind when we talk of, uh, you know, specific dates, especially, you know, historical days. This was a date of coronation because a lot of the times what we find out is also that, you know, uh, a lot of it is manufactured, right? So that's just something to keep in mind, especially in the context of cultures that have had only oral history. So before the British came, um, if we were to like look at the history, the, the sort of uh, what we know or what we read, and because just like you, I, uh, I, I learned about Sikkimese history or the history of the Eastern Himalayas only after I left Sikkim, because I'd mm. never studied that in school or anything. Um, and the history that we study is mostly of the kings. So which king came after this and that, right? So we never learned a lot of the social history. But what was going on there was that, yes, there were principalities, there were rulers, um, and then it was a feudal system. Um, and there were different ethnic groups that were living there uh, in Sikkim. And of course, again, this is a, a tricky situation because... Um, um, a lot of politics, contemporary politics, is related to who was there first, mm. right? who belongs to that space. So it's quite uh, contentious to say uh, who was there technically first, right? But of course, according to history um, and oral history and written history, uh, we had like a indigenous, few indigenous groups who were living there. The kings that we had in Sikkim, for instance, and the kings in Bhutan also, they came from Tibet. Right? Mm. So there was a lot of cross-migration, there was a lot of family contact, there was a lot of religious connection. Um, the Buddhism that we that came to Sikkim, to Bhutan, uh, it came via Tibet, Tibet, right? So these are our interconnections that we have. And this is an important thing when we think of the region, is that for a long time we've been seen as remote and backward and very far away. 
But what has actually been going on is that we've had our own connections. It's a cultural crossroad. So our connections are more with uh, Tibet rather than with the Indian mainland, more towards the the North and the East. And in contemporary times, um, our popular culture is more influenced by Korean pop, right? So it's K-pop, all of that is super, super big. Um, uh, and those are our influences more than, uh, you know, the, the regular South Asian influences, right? So that's really interesting and how this continues, even how these sorts of connections that we see way back in the past have transformed, but also like, you know, are continuing in its own uh, new exciting forms. Okay, so everyone, if you're not driving right now, I just encourage you to like, if you can, I just like had to pull up a map because I was just like, Queen, I got to get all up in this map. Like, I need to like, um, ah, so interesting. I cannot even stand it. So cool. So the British had their own agenda for different states. For Sikkim, for instance, uh, it was an access to Tibet. Right. So they wanted to open trade with Tibet. Mm. So the way they so the colonization process was completely different. There. So it wasn't even like uh, uh, as it was in other parts of India. Um, Darjeeling, for that matter, was actually it used to be a part of Sikkim, but that was colonized uh, for tea plantations. Right. So the history of British uh, intervention, so to say, and colonization in the in this in the in that region is very varied and it depended on what the agenda of the British was at that time for that region, right? And another, how colonization continued to live on in the region is uh, through schools and educations and uh, religion, actually. So a lot of Christian missionaries came into the region. They opened schools um, and these were like, and they're still very, very prestigious schools even now. So a lot of uh, people want to send the kids to these sorts of schools that have been opened by missionaries, right? So the legacy of colonization still continues to live there. And actually, our last queen was an American, Hope Cook. She lives in the States. You've definitely got to meet her. I don't understand how an American became a queen of somewhere and then didn't get super famous. We're obsessed with like someone who goes and becomes a queen. Well, she was. I hate it about myself, but I do love a little royalty moment. I hate it that I love it, but I do. I don't know what my problem is. So there's a uh, there's a Nat Geo from March 1963, and it's all about the wedding of the, the royal family of Sikkim. And uh, Hope Cook is there. She's giving Brooke shields. Yeah, she is super, and she's here. So now that I... And hopefully all of us understand better, like, geographically where Sikkim, Darjeeling, and then, like, East Nepal are. Is, like, the UK, like, more popular in some places? We're like, oh, yeah, they did us a solid, and then other places, they're like, I fucking hate them. More than the place, I think it's about the group of people, right? Because, of course, I'm sure the landowners, the feudal lords, loved it. Because what the British uh, enabled was migration of labor. They allowed, and they... Uh, not just allowed, but the enabled movement of people from eastern Nepal uh, to come and work in the tea plantations and to work as laborers in Sikkim and in other regions, right? So it's it's not about like the place which was like, oh, we love the Brits, but it's more about class, which section of the society loved them more. The landowners, now they've got surplus labor who have no rights, Right. What happened with British uh, colonization uh, is the movement of people because of 
you know, development in that sense, right? So development of agriculture, whether it's agriculture in Sikkim, whether it's plantation um, uh, economy in Darjeeling, right? So that allowed people to move in. So it's more of a class thing even then. We don't talk about class in the region as much as we probably should be talking about class, but we talk more about um, ethnicity, you know, mm. that's, that's, that's the most defining uh, sort of uh, feature for, you know, for us. I think that's more important than anything. So in the Eastern Himalayan borderlands between like Sikkim, Darjeeling, East Nepal, what are some of the key like social and cultural and political features like of these places that we should be more aware of and in, in talking about more when we're thinking about the Eastern Himalaya? And it's very fascinating because I studied these three as a part of my PhD. And of course, it's a borderland where people of the same ethnic group live across borders, right? Uh, and it's all cultural connections. Uh, so, you know, people celebrate the same festivals, speak the same language, similar language, same languages, etc., etc. And of course, there's, you know, culture goes from one place to another. But what I found really interesting was that despite the similarities, the way we uh, identify uh, and uh, as who we are and how we play out our uh, politics is completely different, mm. right? So although, for instance, just to give you an example, although there are Nepalis living on either side of the Nepal border, so there's, the Nepalis live in Nepal, but there's a lot of Indian Nepalis also living in India and Darjeeling, right? But how we identify who we are uh, as citizens of which country, our politics are completely different despite the similar ethnic, you know, and cultural connections. So you could have family in Nepal, but you would never say that you're Nepalese, you know. We would make sure that we'd be like, no, but I'm Indian Nepali. Or I'd say, um, I'm, I'm Indian Gorkha or something like that, right? So in the borderlands, people choose certain identities um, based on their location of, of which country they belong to, rather than choosing, um, I belong to this ethnic group, so I should identify as that. Is that because if that border got established and then there's like a gigantic mountain, it's like it creates like a physical distance? Or yeah. like, is that why it becomes so like, you know, geographically based? And then like the culture and the politics change between... <laughs> Uh, the, so in terms of geography, it can be uh, disruptive in places, but the politics is different. So even if there's no geographical sort of separation, even if it's one single plane, uh, the politics is different because of what, how your relationship with the state is, you know, mm. so because people belong to different states, right? People belong to different countries. And within those spaces, how does that state or that country treat you, right? And what benefits can you get? So it all depends on local politics. I want to ask a question, but I'm scared that it's like stupid, but I'm, I think I'm going to ask it. Okay. So, cause Sikkim is its own country or is it part of, India. No. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It used to be its own independent kingdom up till 1975, and we became a part of India mm. in 1975. Yeah. Got air quotes. So we 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 merged with India 
1975. Was that a peaceful merger or like not a peaceful yeah. merger? It was a peaceful merger. It was. It was a peaceful merger. But it's also Sikkim's history is interesting because of its location, right? Because if you look at the map again, we are right next. Like we stick out like a thumb and right next to China. Right. Like, you know, China is on the top and then we've got Nepal on one side and Bhutan on one side, right? So the the politics of that region has really got to do with the borders also. So how each country deals with its citizens, the especially people living in the borders, it's really got to do with the geopolitics of the region, right? So you've got India is like a big power player in the geopolitics of the region. China yep. is a big power player. And then what's Bhutan? It's an independent kingdom, country. Um, but it's also like, you know, Bhutan and Nepal are in a sort of a kind of similar situation because they are between two big major regional powers, right? So their alliances keep getting like stretched from one side to another, you know, and uh, so it's it's very difficult for, I think, Bhutan and Nepal. Now I'm getting more clear. Now I'm getting clarity. Okay, so yeah. Sikkim is a part of India, but still it's own like independent, like historical culture because it was like own independent thing. Bhutan is still its own kingdom. And then Nepal's its own country. Yeah. And then Tibet is, what's Tibet? China. It's it is. China now. It is? Yeah, like Tibetan Autonomous Region since 1952, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But in the way that Sikkim is a part of India, Tibet's a part of China, but still has its own like rich, like local and like yeah, cultural yeah. history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, <sighs> in, and Sikkim, it's uh, our rights uh, are protected by in the constitution, right? So there's a special provision within the Indian constitution where we can maintain our old laws, what is known as old laws, right? So it's related to property, tax, um, inheritance, these sorts of things. Like who can come and live in Sikkim, who cannot, who can buy property. So we still maintain these checks and balances. I feel like I really am getting it. I just, that's what I meant when I said earlier, where I was like, this is going to be real sixth grade entry. Because like... Um, I am a nightmare and I need to learn like real basics before we get into like the really specific. No, about, it's, it's, all, it's, it's also like, you know, like no one talks about the, and for me, this is why I think this was like really uh, interesting because a lot of the times there's very little that's known about the region. Um, and what we do know is also it's very romanticized, right? So a lot of the times it's just the mountains, um, the monks, the red panda, um, that people know and talk about, which is there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but there's definitely so much more to that place. I think now I have like a better understanding of like a little bit of the history, a little bit of like the physical location of these places. Yeah. Um, how how is it kind of now? It's a very cool place. I'm biased because that's my home, right? Um, but it's a space that's transforming really, really fast. For because And one of the biggest reasons is that we've got better infrastructure and technology, right? So we are now in, connected to the world. So it's easier if the world's come to us. Um, so it, it's really great uh, 
place and it's changing so fast, right? I think when we talk of colonization in the region, one thing again is that colonization doesn't end after the British leave in 1945, right? So there's new types of colonization that continue to happen. So there's new colonization, right? But of course, you've got to think, you know, everything that the British bring is so that they can extract more from that place. It's to make their own lives easier. It's not for anyone else. Uh, so from there, what we see is that, you know, the society is changing a little bit. Uh, we see n- new ethnic groups coming into the region. There's increase in population of these places, right? Uh, and after the British leave, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, Indian investments in the region. And this is something, again, um, that's happened quite recently, that we're seeing a lot of private companies coming into the region, right? Uh, For instance, the tea plantations in Darjeeling used to be owned by the British. After the British left, it was Indian companies that came in and they are the ones running the plantations, right? Um, And in Sikkim, now we see that for the longest time, we didn't have a lot of industries, but now we have a lot of uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, We have hydropower. And one of the biggest changes, one of the biggest drivers of change in the region, across the region actually, is tourism. Mm. or sustainable tourism, whatever that means, right? Um, so, yeah, so these are the things that are driving these changes. And it's, I mean, I'm, 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 I suppose I'm not doing a very good job of, like, uh, explaining these transitions because these are, like, this is like a really long period of time in history. But from where we were and, uh, you know, where we were uh, way back in early 20th century to where we are now, it's phenomenal, the changes that have happened, right? The Ways to understand this place would be through urban development, right? Um, tourism. Uh, these are the things that are really driving the change and transformation of this place. And of course, uh, migration, uh, especially of uh, young people out of villages, out of you know working in farms to working in the cities, and especially of really young women who are out migrating to work in pharmaceutical factories um, or in retail shops and things like that, right? So these are the key things that are happening in this space. And it's happened within a very, very short period of time. For instance, my own grandfather, right? Like when he was working, when he was a young person, they didn't have any phones, they didn't have electricity. But within his own lifetime, you know, we've gone from having, you know, 24 hours electricity to having like, you know, connecting roads, an airport, like all these sorts of things, mobile phones and things like that. And all of this happened like in a really short, condensed period of time, which of course then brings its own problems. How do these political borders impact day-to-day life, say in like the price or like availability of goods or like interactions mm-hmm. with local authorities and like obtaining those things? Um, so India and Nepal have a friendship treaty. So it's called the Indo-Nepal Friendship Treaty, which means that people can come and go and work between these two countries freely. With uh, Bhutan, it's also the same. It's quite uh, easy, relatively easy to get into Bhutan. Um, So the border itself, uh, on a day-to-day basis, it is quite porous within um, India, Nepal, and India, Bhutan. So it is quite easy to go back and forth. but I think when it comes to like when you start going to uh, borders with China, 
when you start going up north, that's when it becomes uh, more difficult and more contentious, right? So it's quite difficult to access those spaces. Um, for instance, you know, as a foreigner, uh, if you want to go into Sikkim, you'll need not only a visa to India, but you need a special permit to go into Sikkim, right? And even within Sikkim, there are only specific places that you can go to. Was caste always a thing or it like became a thing? Like, what's the deal with caste? Um, I don't want to undermine caste because caste is a part of an important, you know, an intrinsic part of Hindu society, right? But you've got to remember that, you know, uh, we've got a whole group of people who are not Hindus, right? So they are Buddhists, they are Christians, they're animists, they follow their own uh, indigenous religions. So caste is an important part of Hindu structure and society. Um, but probably for us in the region, for us, it's not as, again, this is not to downplay the, you know, how caste structures social relationships, but uh, it is probably not as prominent as in other parts of South Asia, I think. So, yeah, it still exists. It still dictates who you can marry, who you cannot, in whose house you can eat and things like that. But Really? I think because, so caste yeah. has to, like, you can't, like, go to, like, somebody else's house if they're not in the same caste or whatever to go Yeah, have- some people can be really conservative uh, about it. And then, you know, they would be like, oh, you know, um, I will not drink water in your house or eat food in your house because you belong to a different caste. Did the prevalence of caste within, like, Hindu culture, like... Did that ever rub off on like other people's culture or was it really kind of like very confined to Hindu people? Um, I, th- I think it's very confined to Hinduism. Um, that's my understanding, my reading of the thing. Um, and what has happened is a lot of people were so sick of this that that's where conversion to Christianity also comes in. Mm. right? Because Christianity doesn't recognize any of these things. Um, this, is, this could be one of the reasons why there's a whole lot of conversion uh, towards Christianity because Christianity is like Jesus doesn't care about any of these sorts of things. Also, like the threat of burning in the fiery pits of hell for the rest of eternity is like also a pretty convincing, uh, you know, that really worked for me at six. You know, I was like, fuck, I don't want to, you know, and I still, you know, top secretly just because I am so scared. I'm like, like, I'm not quite sure, but like, if I was like falling out of a plane or something, like, if I knew, I would yeah. be like, I'm sorry, girl. Like, I would, you know, yeah, like, yeah, like, I, like, like, yeah. please, I don't want to, like, you know, I would, I would probably still, like, I would do anything. I would, yeah. You know, like, why well, you still can't. I would go to uh, church every day. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Also, you know, because for a lot of people, um, again, this goes back to like oral cultures, right? Because uh, for a lot of people, you know, it's, God or what God is doing. It's not written down. It's all passed from, you know, it's it's from person to person. So for a lot of people, and this is what people have told me, the fact that there is a book, the Bible that you can read that tells you exactly what God is, what God is doing, what God did for them, that gives them a lot of, you know, solace, you know, and, and, yeah. and support. So they found that's what they find attractive also about Christianity. There's some scary stuff in there, though, honey. Uh, you got to like, <laughs> it's a whole situation. So then, so like, what about like gender and sexuality? Like, how does that come into play? Like, we love to ask about gay stuff in other cultures. It's like one of my favorite things to learn about yeah. gay stuff, queer stuff. Like, is there any like gorgeous queer sexuality happening or like um, what's the deal? I, I think 
So I'm editing a book called Gender, um, Sexual and Other Identities in the Himalayas uh, with this really fantastic bunch of researchers, young researchers from the region. Compared to other parts of, let's say, India, um, the region where we come from, the northeast, that uh, bit of India where we are, is uh, seen as uh, more free, right? Uh, women have more opportunities uh, and more freedom to do what, you know, to like study, where to, to work, to choose to marry whoever you want to marry. Um, so in that sense, there's also a lot of space, I think, for uh, different identities, right? But having said that, it's still a conservative place, right? So we do see this sort of scene emerging now, queer scene emerging right now. And it's really, really cool how really young people have so much courage to do what they want to do and to lead their authentic lives. And, you know, it, it's really cool to see that happening. But again, it's a very small uh, section. And again, it's also people who have, I, I feel that's my understanding, is that people who are, again, slightly well off, uh, who have access to, and the language of the internet, right? Mm. So if you are savvy enough uh, about how you present yourself and, you know, if you know the lingo, the language of, you know, of, of what the discussions, the conversations are, then you are kind of like fine and even celebrated. But I think for the everyday average uh, person, you know, who's trying to establish or find their own identity, it might be quite a different thing. So class is quite important in this. So speaking of that and that like this area and also is it like do we say Himalaya or Himalayas? Like, Himalaya, I think. But I keep but I keep saying Himalayas and Himalaya. Are they both okay? I would go if you can just say Himalaya, but I think Himalayas I would No, I, I'm yeah, obsessed. Just, I want to do the right thing. So um <laughs> so when it comes so speaking of like the Eastern Himalaya and like speaking of, you know, different identities and how this part of like that you're talking about was like seen as more free, but it's still kind of conservative. Yeah. If we were to zoom out and look at society as a whole, how do one's overlapping identities like shape their experience? So like at the beginning, we were saying like, well, you know, it wasn't really so much of like the state that you were in with colonization. It was like where you were in society. Like if yeah. you were a property owner, like then you were really going to like it. If you were someone who was maybe more at the margins and you really weren't going to probably like it as much. So like in general, just to understand, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I could take a stab. Is it cishet men who hold power? Oh, absolutely. So Absolutely. Shocker. Who else? What like? Oh so, my like, god! Like, of course. Like, who else? <laughs> exactly. But it's it's really sad, you know. And this is what I feel, right? So for all our modernity and all our education, and uh, it's still men, you know, who make the decisions for us, who are still in positions of power, you know. And it's it's just it's really sad, like. Of course, yes, you know, we are free to do whatever we want to do. We are free to wear whatever we want to wear and do all of these things. But in terms of actual having political power and agency, it's still men. Now, is it like a governor or like a president who gets elected and then like reports to India? Like how does like how does like the the politics work? Is that it? So for Sikkim, we've got our own uh, what is we call it the chief minister, which is like the premier of the state. It's a democracy, right? So we uh, we elect every five years. We elect this person, but for the for a very long time, uh, we've had the same 
we had the same person, like the last chief minister that we had ruled for 25 years. So it was like, you know, it was felt a bit like an extension of the monarchy that was going on. But anyway, so the, the idea is that we elect people. Um, it's a multi-party political system. So, you know, you can have as many political parties. And yeah, and then we, you know, that person then reports to, in a sense, or is accountable to the central government in India. And has there ever been a woman elected to that or like in the cabinet or something? Yeah, uh, not like to the main position of the premier or the chief minister, but of course you have to, by law, there's a certain uh, uh, proportion of uh, people in the ministry uh, or in the cabinet that have to be women, right? Mm. But this is the thing, this is my problem, is that it's very perfunctory. It's only like, okay, it's a tick, you know, let's tick these boxes, sort of an exercise, you know, women, women are, we, we have to have maybe, let's say, five women in the, the government or whatever. So let's make sure we just do the bare minimum. But, it, you know, it's, it's got to do with the kind of political system we have in place, but it's also got to do with uh, women and their interest and engagement with politics. They just, they just don't want to do it. They, yeah. Or is it like societally, like it hasn't been encouraged? Like, and so, if, so if we we know who's in power usually. So, who is at the margins currently in the Eastern Himalaya that needs more support? Um, I think, uh, of course, women um, and people of you know uh, other identities. Yeah. But I think also just the youth. The young people in that region need a lot more support, I feel, especially because they face a lot of unemployment. Um, so there's a lot of unemployment and there's a lot of pressure. You know, being a young person is hard anyway, right? But you add this whole idea of how, you know, you have to be successful um, and you have to have a job and then, you know, you support your family and things like that. So add these all these pressures there. Um, and then you don't have a lot of things that you can do. So this is what is also then leading to out-migration of young people, mm. right? So whether it be from uh, the villages to urban areas or from urban areas to bigger cities, right? So we're seeing a lot of out-migration of young people. So yeah, apart from like, yes, of course, women and other minorities, I think young people need a lot of support. Um, and the creation of opportunities, I think, if we want to stay in our place if we want to you know build that place i think a lot more needs to be invested also in those places okay so that actually leads us perfectly to where we're going next which is like development in the region now so we see that like out migration is an issue um yeah. lack of access to um Upward economic mobility is an issue. Is what other issues um, are people facing? Is it like is it transportation? Is it access to like? Because you said earlier, like for LGBTQ people, it's like if you have access to the internet, like you need to have some sort of either like capital or like social capital, like some way yeah. to access these things to get the savvy to understand what's yeah. going on in the world. So, is it just like access to information? Like, is that kind of one of the main things that people are up against? I think the big problem is because of the location, the geographical location, it's very difficult to establish anything, right? So to have big factories and things like that. Um, because 
for the longest time, um, people have been relying on agriculture, right? Or on these tea plantations, no matter how exploitative, no matter how bad paying it was, people have relied on these sorts of things. But what is happening is that now a lot of young people who've gone to schools and colleges are now saying like, you know what, we don't want to be doing that stuff. You know, mm. we want proper jobs, right? So we want to move up. So um, uh, one of the big problems is the lack of opportunities, the lack of uh, availability of work itself in this region. Um, and when work does get created, right? So for instance, we have lots of pharmaceutical factories in Sikkim. And this was a part of my research. When a lot of, when, when these factories came, the kind of jobs that became available to people and especially women was just working on the assembly line, which is just manual labor, where you just become like the part of a machine, um, which does not actually have any opportunities for mobility, right? Like upward mobility. So the kinds of jobs that have also been created are not really great for people there, right? So it's not just about like information, but it's also about the kind of jobs that are available. Um, and just like, uh, education and the quality of education is also very important. Um, it's good in some places, but it's not really great, right? So people go to school, uh, they become, you know, they get literate, but are they actually educated or not? And in India, you know, like, you know, can you speak fluent English or not? Can be quite a deciding factor in what kind of jobs or whether you can be, be considered for a job or not, you know? So, a lot of, you know, people that I know and people that, uh, you know, who are my friends from school, when they finished high school, they went and worked in these call centers, right? So, because they could speak fluent English, right? So the kind of job and things become available, that's also linked to the skills that you acquire, right? right? So is it safe to say that, like, in rural parts of Eastern Himalaya, it's like yeah. more agriculture based work. And then in urban areas or like more urban centers, it's like there's like pharma factories, mm -hmm. call centers. What else? Like, yeah. what other like types so, of jobs are happening in urban spaces? So, so the pharmaceuticals are like in more like outside urban areas because you mm. can't have factories within urban, but they're, uh. they've been peri urban areas, right? So, what is known as a peri urban areas. But in the Eastern Himalayas, uh, yes, agriculture is really, really important. But the thing that's really driving change and driving urbanization is tourism. Mm. Right. So everybody wants to go to exotic Eastern Himalayas. Right. So the, the image is of the Shangri-La. The image is of exotic, hidden, wonderful, you know, blah, 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 uh, sort of space. So tourism is really, really important and it employs uh you know, people, locals, as in hotels, um, in restaurants, and um, as taxi drivers, and in some places as tour guides and things like that. Um, and another thing is that's really important, that's also leading to urbanization and development is consumption, mm. you know, is retail and consumption, right? Mm. So there are heaps more shops that have opened up, right? There's, there's so many shops that have opened up that employ uh, especially young women, right? and this is a this is again like a bit of my research that I did on young women working in these shops. Despite where we are, you know, everybody is extremely trendy, right? Everybody's on point, right? <laughs> so, what is fueling this is actually cheaper fake products, 
right? That are that are coming through the different borders, right? So one is it's, it's either coming through China or it's either coming through Bangkok. So everybody is like really well dressed. So it's but consumerism is also driving migration because there are lots of shops opening up, and in these shops are like really young girls working, right? So they are moving out of villages to come and work in these shops, and when they come to live in, you know come to work in these shops, they need a place to live. So that's also driving urbanization. What if someone goes to school in like a rural or urban place and they're like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with school. Like, is there college and like community college and stuff? Well, we do have education is, uh, especially government subsidized education is uh, quite accessible. So you could go to, you know, and, and and I know people and it is possible to actually go to government schools and colleges and to also do really well, you know, so that is possible also. But it's like, can you afford to even like, can you afford to not make money for yourself or your family to do that for three or four yeah. years? Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, if you know, if you go to another city, another bigger Indian city, you know, uh, to, to study, of course, you get, you know, you've got, you've got better networks, you learn better things, you know, so all these sorts of things. But having said that, I mean, you could still be in the, you know, you could still go to a local college or you could go to the local school or uni or whatever, and you can still be all right. But I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a decision that they have to make. Do I study or do I work? You know, so what do I do? So like I was reading about like these like religious theme parks that are there too, and like, so between like the pharmaceutical factories, the religious theme parks, the hydropower projects, the retail and service industry, like who is leading the charge on all of these development projects? And I'm assuming that whoever's leading the charge on those is the ones that's walking away with like the biggest profit. Yes. Yes. And I could get into trouble. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so who's leading? So, you know, uh, You've got to understand that in that in in South Asia in general, uh, the state plays a very very important role, right? In terms of development, so everything is sort of state approved, right? So whether it's in Nepal, whether it's in Sikkim, whether it's in Bhutan, um, everything is controlled by the state, right? Having said that, what we are seeing now is a lot of private companies are also uh, investing in the state. So the state usually also tends to act as a mediator, right? But of course, everything has to be approved by the state. So if you want to build this major religious theme park or what I call the religious Legoland, and I'm going Mm -hmm. to go to hell for that, (laughs) but that has to be approved by the state. So the state is a mediator, right? So if you want to buy land to build these things, if you want to buy land to build pharma, if you want to build land for hydro, the state has to mediate um, and 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 so it's you know so it talks to the landowners, but it also is representing the interest of private companies, right? So it's a it's a it's a very hybrid sort of uh, relationship, but it's the state which is um, doing all of this supposedly for the benefit of the people. Mm. We learned on an episode of Getting Curious about um, dam displacement and about like the effects that like hydropower uh, can have on like different areas. So 
the hydropower projects that we mentioned, and then also like pharmaceuticals, I would imagine you could have a lot of like waste or like runoff Mm -hmm. is like a result of those. Like, is there any like negative impacts that these developments are having on the environment? It's not good. Well, that's my personal opinion is that it's, uh, it it can be, these sorts of development can be done in a way that doesn't harm um, the environment. Because at the end of the day, we've got to ask like, who is it benefiting, right? At the end of the day, it's, it's basically these, private companies that are just extracting. And where are these private companies from? Are they from India or are they from... Yeah, only it's it's all Indian private companies. Um, and they're not like, you know, um, Chinese or whatever. It's not allowed. Um, these sorts of investments are not allowed. So most of these, like all these private companies um, are but Indian. Could those private companies have investors in them that are like American, Russian, like whoever the... Like, because if it's a private company, like, is there any way to even know like exactly who's within it? I think they have to be quite transparent about it. And in India, they've got quite strict laws about what percentage of which company can have foreign investment, Mm. right? So it depends. So they're quite strict about it. And what percentage, so is it like, you know, 50 or 51% can be foreign investment or not, right? So um, on the face of it, you know, it's, it's all Indian companies that are that are coming in. Uh, And of course there've been like a lot of negative impacts of hydropower and uh, pharmaceutical and hydropower is more sort of visible, right? It's really changed the landscape. We've got a river called the River Tista, which drains the entire state. It's it's basically now like a lake. It's become like a sluggish lake, and it's really the it's really destabilized the the land on the sides of the river, and but also because of the tunnels that have been built. What has happened is that it's really because the tunnels have been built, it's changed the uh, the groundwater level, right? So now springs are drying up, right? Because the water, basically, the water table has shifted. So you do a lot of drilling that shifts the water table. So the water that was supposed to flow in a certain way doesn't flow, right? So I've been to tunnels where it's basically just water is seeping from the roofs of the tunnel. Right, because this is water that is supposed to have gone into a spring somewhere, but it's been diverted. Right, so what yeah. this has done is it's created water shortages and water problems for villages. So what that then means is that people can't water their crops; they have to walk. I don't know, maybe like more for you know longer distances for water and things like that. And these are just like you know the things that are like really just visible right now. Um, but the, but I think. I'm more concerned about the long-term impact of hydro and what that's going to do to the region. And it's really scary because it's a, we are a very earthquake-prone region, right? And we get heavy, heavy monsoon right? every year when it rains. It's really scary when you're traveling up the hills because you just don't know what might happen, right? And pharmaceuticals are very insidious because you, you can't see their, what they're doing, right? Um, but of course, it's a lot of toxic release of, uh, you know, all these toxins in the in the rivers and streams. And a lot of women that I spoke to during my fieldwork, um, they also talked about health issues that they started experiencing after working. But of course, you know, it's, it's all anecdotal and no one's actually done like a like a big survey to see if there have been any health impacts. But yeah, so, so there's so many things that are going on. So this really begs the question is, it's like, it's development, but development for whom? And what is this development, right? Because who's benefiting from this? Because all we are seeing is just the destruction of 
our environment and our way of life. How is that affecting the political and cultural formation of the East Himalaya, this dichotomy of this development and what it's doing to the people? Well, sadly, it's it's also, you know, a, a place which is uh, where there is a lot of poverty and there is a lot of hardship and struggle. So for a lot of the people and a lot of the times, the question is, do I do I have the luxury to think about environmental uh, impacts or do I think about, you know, earning money? Right. So the choice is between do I go and work in the pharmaceutical factory and, you know, earn this money so I can feed my kids and send them to school? Or do I just say this is a bad thing? So, yes, on the one hand, you know, like, you know, you think that there should be more awareness, there should be more conversations around this and more political activity around this. But then, you know, I'm speaking from a position of privilege to say that we should be doing more of this because if someone is earning a livelihood from doing these things, who am I to say that this is a bad thing, right? So it's it's a very difficult thing because on the one hand, yes, everybody knows that this should not be happening. Um, but then, you know, there are people's livelihoods and lives uh, attached to this. And again, this goes, again goes back to the power of the state because if the state approves and sanctions something, um, it's very difficult then to go against it, you know? Um, so it's, it's, yes, of course, in an ideal world, you know, we should be protesting against all of these things that are happening, but it's, it's more murky and it's very difficult to actually achieve these things. Yeah. So what do you see on the horizon for the Eastern Himalaya and, and what's your hope for it? What do I see on the horizon? Um, I'm actually quite concerned. Um, to be honest, because I, and I suppose like, you know, this is probably because of my own bias, because I'm from there and seeing this, you know, just looking at the speed of transformation um, of the region. Uh, I am concerned about on an environmental uh, level, what is going to happen, because we are urbanizing so rapidly. Right. And there's so much pressure on the natural environment. So I am concerned about like how far can we push this? Right? How far can we push our hills, our mountains, right? How much can we extract before something happens, something really disastrous happens? So I'm, I'm concerned on that level. Uh, and also I'm again concerned about like, what is the future going to look like for the people, for the young people? Like, what will they be doing, right? Um, what, you know, what kind of work will they be doing? What, how will they be making a livelihood? So I am concerned about that. But then again, I meet young people and then I interact with young people and then it gives me a bit of hope because they're so resilient and they're so creative that they're finding new ways of doing things, of expressing things and achieving things, you know, things. And because I suppose like my generation, we grew up, you know, thinking in a box, right? Like you've got to do this, you've got to study, you've got to go to school, you've got to get a job, etc. But the young kids now are just like, thinking of very, very creative ways in which they can, you know, lead the life that they want to, you know, and and not just be bogged down by this very linear way of looking at things. So, yeah, so what do I hope for? You know, I mean, I think it's a mixed emotion, I think, for me. On, on the one hand, I am worried about what's going to happen, but I think there's a bit of hope 
looking at the young people from the region, I think we'll be all right. So love that. So you were like minding your own business, like (laughs) in college, you know, like learning about things. And then what initially drew you to the type of research that you have found yourself doing? Um, You know, I've ended up becoming this um, researcher who does who researches so many different kinds of things, because from what I researched in my PhD is very different to what I research now. But I never thought I'd be doing this. You know, I thought it would be a different life for me. Um, But it was actually my experiences uh, as an Indian Nepali in Delhi and the sort of questions that people had around my own identity and citizenship, because they would constantly say to me, oh, are you from Nepal? Are you from Nepal? Right. And I would be like, no, I'm from Sikkim. And no one would know like where Sikkim is and be like, yeah, whatever. You know, so these are these sort of experiences. Um, and then, you, you know, uh, that led me into really interrogating. Um, it started with who I am and it's become more about the place uh, where I'm from. And then I'm sure you can answer this question better after the last hour that we spent together. What misconceptions do you think people have about the borderlands and about the Eastern Himalaya and globally? Uh, that's a big question. Uh, misconceptions around borderlands. I think one of the biggest misconceptions around borderlands, and it's, it's not just about the Eastern Himalayas, but borderlands in general, is people tend to think... Uh, when we talk of borderlands, people tend to think just specifically in terms of political borderlands, you know, but it's, it's, and as the periphery of the nation state, when we think of border, we think in terms of country, isn't it? But I think we, what we've got to do is we've got to like try and like realign how we think, right? And not just think of borders as peripheries or the end of the nation state, right? But rather as a really interesting cultural spaces of cross connections. Do you feel like, especially for the people who live along these borders, do you feel like they're more tolerant of the, like, like if there's ever a fight or like a political shakeup generally and between any of like the political differences, do you ever think that the people living on the border are like, honey, that's like my cousin across the way. They're not like that. I think it depends on... Very situational. Yeah, yeah, it depends because it's, you know, this again goes back to what we talked about, what, an hour ago, I think, uh, about who we are and which, you know, which, you know, which countries we belong to. That really also does have an Mm. impact on how we identify ourselves. So where does my loyalty, my belonging uh, you know, where does it lie, right? So, yes, of course, yeah, I've got, like, family and whatever across the border, but if someone says something about Sikkim, I tend to be like, but you know, I tend to be like, oh, we're way cooler than you people in Darjeeling or whatever, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a bit of, like, enmity does exist, but, yeah, but I think, you know, which place we belong to has a really big impact on how we um, sort of... Uh, respond to problems. So Dr. Munachetri, what is next for you and for your research? It's been two years since I've been able to go back home because of COVID. So I've uh, embarked on a new research project here in Australia because I was like, hmm, 
I can't go home for field work, but my people are here. So I'm looking at Himalayan migrants uh, working in regional Australia. So these are migrants from Nepal uh, and also refugees from Bhutan who are working here, uh, who are living and working in regional Australia, usually in the healthcare sector, usually in cleaning and things like that. So that's my new project. I also want to keep continuing working on gender um, and new labor in the Eastern Himalayas, because I think that's really, really interesting, right? Because what are young women doing in their lives? I'm very curious about that. Um, but yeah, given COVID and whatever's happened in the last two years, I can't seem to plan beyond that, you know. Any idea of when you'll be able to get to go home and visit and then be able to actually um, come back? Like, have they said anything about that? Because I heard that, like, Western Australia was, like, the most lockdown of the lockdown years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we just opened up last week. So I should be able to hope, I'm hoping to go back, like, uh, in June or July. Um, but it's always really scary with Australia because you just don't know when they might clamp down and say, like, right. we can't come back. Right. So it's a bit, but it's been too long, you know. It's been more than two years since I've gone back home. And um, I need to go and, yeah, just be at home and eat. Yeah, I was going to say, what's your, fa- what's your favorite food? What's your favorite food oh my God. from home? Dumplings. Uh. Momo. I love, oh my God, I love, oh. I, I, I can't choose. I mean, you know, when I go back to India, when I go back home, I'm on this eating rampage. I'm just like uncontrollable. I will just. I'm like that too when I go home, but I bet the food's not yeah. as good as yours. I bet it's like. I, well, my, our food's really good too. We could we could have a feast of like Midwestern fare and then some gorgeous um <laughs> like uh, Eastern Himalaya fare together. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Would love to. Well, you should come down to Perth, and when you come down to Perth, you should uh, we we should hang out. I'm hitting <laughs> you can up. Eat some. I'm hitting you yeah, up. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much yeah. for coming on. Getting curious, Dr. Mona. We appreciate you so much for your time and for your research. And I you feel so- like I learned so many things. And thank you so much oh. for coming on. Getting curious. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. And it's really a great opportunity because we don't get any exposure in a sense, right? So this has been really great. Thank you for giving me this platform. It's amazing that we've been able to get it off the ground. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Dr. Mona Chetri. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend or five or 10 or 20 and show them how to subscribe. We love that story. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JBN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 